Welcome to Where's the Door, a literary anthology podcast featuring little-known or unpublished authors and poets from across all genres. I'm Carlos Molina. And I'm Joe Masiri. And in each episode, we'll present a collection of thematically linked short stories and poems. So this week's episodes are wrapped around the theme of the shortcomings of humanity. And for many of us out there, I'm sure you know that person whose best friend is their pet. Whether it's that crazy cat lady or that person who loves their dog a little too much. But when you think about the shortcomings of some people, sometimes you can understand why people choose to make their pets their best friend. Which is a shame because humans, we've done a lot of great things. In the Renaissance, <laughs> uh, landed on the moon. Yeah, These are impressive things to accomplish. Yeah, and yet still. But we're pretty bitchy to each other sometimes, even though we can do that stuff. And we kind of just let each other down, and we hurt each other, and sometimes we know we're doing it, and sometimes we don't, and sometimes that's even worse. So what happens when the people we know hurt those we love the most? This story is called But It Did Happen by Carlos A. Molina. Strange that on that particular day in mid-August, it had been raining. After such a gorgeous week, hot even for that time of year, but gorgeous nonetheless, the rain mollified a city that begged for normalcy, for the status quo. After a week like that, when triple digits become an everyday occurrence, the city verges on tumult, and only the malicious and sadistic wish the rain away. Yes, the summers were gorgeous and sunny, but the identity of the city lied in the gray, the overcast, the dank. Not humid, but wet. The cumulus seldom angry, but stern. Leviathans floating over the city, shielding its inhabitants from vitamin D and sunburn and all the luxuries that come with. Like everyone else, that identity took a yearly vacation in July and August. On that strangely rainy August day, a house was supposed to be warmed. Amy moved in at the beginning of the month, and after settling, sought to combine social circles. There were her friends from back home who had moved out there before her and were pleased to have a wet reprieve from the dry reprieve. There were also her new roommates, far from perfect fits, but the price was right. Two weeks' time sufficed for getting settled, seeing as how the house was already inhabited. Francis, an amateur yogi, and Bernie, a bon vivant, had shared the house for a few years, taking in third roommates to lower the costs. The hot tub, barbecue, and backyard projection screen allowed for plenty of outdoor entertainment. Should the rain pick back up, Roy the cat presided over the billiards table in the basement, conveniently next to Amy's room. Roy was an old cat with bad knees. He left the green felt of the table surface untouched and impeccable, since he could no longer jump up there as he would like to. He found all four legs of the table to be an extraordinary consolation and used them as scratching posts, even if people were playing. The rain commenced in the morning, lasted through lunch, and waved its valedictions for a few weeks in the early evening. The party would go on as planned, starting in the early evening, just as the rain and the city parted ways. By then, everybody should have been sick of sitting inside, watching the drops slide down the panes. 
Amy, ever the gracious hostess, made a potent punch and lined up her favorite set of martini glasses in front of the serving bowl. The grill was fired up and the meat prepared to burn. The hot tub bubbled, the billiards table was racked, the cues were chalked, and the posts were scratched. Francis and Bernie awaited the arrival of their guests, though their excitement hinged more on when they could eat than when the people arrived. They invited a few friends of their own, but didn't really care if they came or not. Anybody they cared to see, they planned on meeting up with after the party at the bars anyway. The texts and phone calls began to come in about half an hour before party time. It's too rainy. Huh. I'm getting laid. It's too wet. I'm really broke. We don't have a ride. I totally forgot, and I've got to go do this other thing. We're getting laid. Just about everyone let Amy know they would not be attending. Francis and Bernie read the writing on the wall and let their friends know not to bother. They would meet up at the bar shortly. Roy did not care to be disappointed. The rain had soothed the city, Amy included, so her temper did not run as high as normal when she realized no one would show. Instead, she poured herself some punch, and then she poured herself some more. Then the three new roommates fired up the grill and threw on some of the tastiest dead animal imaginable. The heat emanating from the grill provided a comfortable warmth compared to the coolness in the early evening air. The meat juices sizzling and dripping down into the open flame went well with the soundtrack humming through the sound system. They chuckled and guffawed outside around their food over nothing in particular. The time passed and Amy got drunk. After about one hour and who knows how many drinks for the hosts, Gary and Lois arrived. They were late by any normal measure, but on time according to their time. They slept through most of the rain and nursed a hangover through whatever had been left of it. The previous night had dragged on into the morning, and the rest of the day had not left them entirely recuperated. They did not come to the party because they wanted to be there, but instead felt a sense of responsibility towards Amy. Lois and Amy had been friends in grammar school and had grown apart since Lois and her family moved away from their hometown. They hadn't spoken in close to five years before Amy decided to move to the concrete rainforest, though it was easy to keep abreast of each other's lives through their mutual friends. They didn't mean to lose touch, nor did they actively try to avoid each other. It just sort of happened that way, as it does to so many others who no longer share a zip code. After Lois moved away, she would visit her hometown every summer, and they would catch up and play then. Running through sprinklers, eating ice cream, talking about the boys they liked, going swimming in the creeks, all the things young girls did when they only had the summers with each other. Once they went to college, they ran into each other less, each choosing to do their own things in the summers, their times back home never overlapping. Again, they didn't mean to lose touch, it just sort of happened that way. Now, having moved to a new city and really with no one else to turn to, Amy reached out to Lois to rekindle the friendship. And Lois was more than happy to rekindle her childhood friendship. She felt a slight hint of apprehension since they hadn't spoken in so long, and since Amy could become unbearable at times. At least that's how Lois remembered it. 
They had seen each other twice in the two weeks since Amy moved to town, and so far their experiences together were either great or terrible in Lois's book. The first time had been great, as Lois would expect it to be, the first time you see a dear friend you hadn't seen in a while. They caught each other up on the details they had missed through the grapevines of each other's lives, giggling and laughing just as they had in old times, annoying the bartender and many of the patrons, but not caring. The second time came a week later, and without the catching up to drive the conversation, Amy reverted to one of the qualities Lois hated most. As the youngest of many, Amy tended to become an overcompensator and a story-topper when she felt nervous, threatened, or bored. Or happy, excited, or sad. Perhaps it wasn't so much a reversion as it was her personality. If Lois began talking about a trip she took, Amy had taken a longer one somewhere more exotic. If one of Lois's high school friends had a blossoming music career, one of Amy's friends was touring successfully. If Lois had a sweet new recipe, Amy's grandma had taught her that recipe years ago, except it had one secret ingredient that would make it that much better. Lois got sick of this pretty quickly and chose to go home early that night. It was now a week later, and Lois felt an obligation to go support her new, old friend. She dragged Gary along because he had nothing better to do, and she knew it. Gary was not about to disagree, partly because he knew he'd lose, and partly because there would be booze there. He'd met Amy for the first time a week prior to the party, at Amy and Lois's second time hanging out, when she broke out her full-fledged baby sister complex. He, too, found her to be unbearable that evening. When they walked in the door fashionably late, the look on Amy's face said it all. After however many drinks she downed in the short time after the cancellations began to pile up, it was impossible for her to hide any sentiment. Her face instantly lit up with happiness and gratitude the second two people, any two people, walked in the door of her party. Lois and Gary looked around and wondered if they had missed everybody. Were they that late? Was this supposed to be a daytime barbecue? Did a hangover cause them to miss yet another social function? Amy ran up to both of them and gave them each a huge hug, which made Lois uncomfortable because Amy's enormous breasts pressed upon her chest, and Gary loved because Amy's enormous breasts pressed upon his chest. Amy, still the gracious hostess, sauntered over to her punch bowl and filled two martini glasses to the brim. She stumbled back towards her guests, spilling a minimal amount, and handed them hair of a different dog. It would get the job done, and soon everyone felt, however, slightly more chipper. Amy began to explain why everybody was missing by turning it into a sob story, and luckily in the middle of her woe, she realized she neglected to introduce the only people there to each other. Bernie had a burger in one hand and a beer in the other. Unfortunately, his beer was in his right hand. He reluctantly put it down with a look of consternation before he extended his now free hand and offered a warm smile and a firm shake. As he picked it up, he realized he had set it down next to his unfinished punch martini, so he stuffed the burger into his face in order to double fist. Doing this while wearing a Hawaiian shirt, he looked like a big, fat party dynamo. Francis's handshake left much to be desired. 
Gary felt immediate discomfort as he gripped his limp fish, with Francis and his five fingers barely holding on to Gary's fingertips. Gary gave him a look of shock and disgust that Francis seemed not to notice. He kept the look on his face the entire time as his gaze followed Francis's hand toward a shake with Lois. He offered the same limp fish and Gary moved his gaze up to meet Lois's eyes. She had a look of dismay combined with mirth, and though shocked and a little disgusted, looked on the verge of bursting into laughter. Luckily, at that moment, Roy came up and brushed himself against Lois's legs, and the group lost her for the evening. With Lois playing with the cat and Amy directing Bernie on how to cook, Gary got stuck making small talk with haddock hands, and the small talk became heavy-handed very quickly. Instead of the usual niceties like, how do you do, and where are you from, Francis delved right into his own personal yoga philosophy. Gary neither asked, nor did he care, yet Francis continued to volunteer his thoughts. He was on the road to enlightenment and needed everybody to know it. Upon learning Gary didn't practice yoga, Francis became appalled and borderline confrontational. How much could you possibly know about yourself if you never meditated? questioned Francis. Gary furrowed his brow, confused, and looked around to see who could save him from this conversation. He was on his own. The din of the proselytizing continued for several minutes as Gary's eyes glazed over until he finally finished his drink and excused himself for a refill. After filling his martini glass, Gary feigned interest in something that his hostess cared about, herself. He asked for a tour of her new place, partially to be polite and partially to get away from the yogi. Lois picked up Roy, and Amy led the group through the house, first downstairs to the pool table and then her room. Roy struggled to jump out onto the table, but Lois held strong. From Amy's room, they went back upstairs to the ground floor, where the kitchen and living room were. The house looked comfortable and lived in, with magazines strewn all over the coffee table, dishes in the sink, and video game systems on the living room floor in front of the television with their controllers in a rat king. Upstairs were the guys' rooms, the only part of the house omitted from the tour. Back outside, with another refill in hand, Gary dreaded listening to another second of Francis's rantings. Fortunately, he and Bernie were fiddling around with the projector, with nothing coming from their labor. The sun now peeked out from behind the clouds just in time to set, and a little of its light even managed to penetrate through the trees of the backyard. Everyone was feeling good with the help of the punch. The conversation lulled the way it would for a group of people who didn't know each other very well or have very much in common. The only one who continued to talk consistently was Amy, the overlapping area in the group's Venn, who reminded everyone how excited she was to be in the new city and bragged about the deal she got on the martini set at the local thrift store. Even Francis seemed to get the hint about who wanted to hear what from him, though he did occasionally interject with his opinions on the benefits of secondhand stores and shopping local. With the sun almost down, it was time to head to the bars. Bernie and Francis were meeting people, and some of Amy's cancellations had told her they would meet up with her later if she gave them a call. The main strip of bars lay about a five-minute walk from the house, and the specific bar they were going to, only five minutes down said strip. After a celebratory house and gullet warming shot, Lois let go of Roy, and he scampered inside to the legs of the pool table. 
Amy made any phone calls she needed to make on the walk over, letting people know where and when to be there. Again. Francis grabbed two bottles of wine he owed his friends and put them in a small backpack, which he wore high and tight against his spine. They turned off the non-working projector, locked up the house, and proceeded to the bar. It was nearly nighttime when they stepped out onto the sidewalk, but they could see the concrete was still dark with dampness from the day's rain. The air felt refreshing and somehow less muggy or stuffy than it had felt in the backyard. The walk could have been a quick one, but it felt good to be out in the cool summer night's air. The guys walked slowly on ahead while the girls fell back, albeit slightly, making phone calls. When they made the left onto the strip, the guys were about 30 seconds ahead of the girls, so there was a brief window where they could not see what happened around the corner. During this brief window, Gary noticed a cat walking along the houses on the left and thought it looked nothing like Roy, which it didn't. The cat then made a mad dash across the street, right into the path of an oncoming vehicle. Gary could see its silhouette in the car's headlights, and the sound of the thud did not make it seem like the driver had hit anything alive. The cat didn't screech or howl or meow or cry out in any way. Maybe the driver just hit a very solid garbage bag. The car pulled over 20 feet ahead of the animal. In this brief period of time, Francis perked up, dropped his backpack straight down to the ground, and made his own mad dash at the cat like a firefighter rushing into a burning building. It was one of the most dramatic runs a hero had ever made, or so Francis thought. The bag fell in slow motion and hit the ground as he reached the animal. Gary could hear the bottles breaking, and when he looked down, he could already see the wine seeping out of the pack. Bernie stood there and said and did nothing. When Gary looked back up, he could see the animal twitching and clawing up at Francis, trying to keep him at bay. For a brief second, he thought to turn around and tell the girls not to come around the corner, but the second was too brief, and by the time he turned around, the girls had already made the left. He took a step to go meet them, but Lois put her hand to her mouth. It was clear she had already seen. Gary turned back around, and Francis had picked up the cat and moved it to the sidewalk. The driver had gotten out of the car and had already asked what she had hit. Gary felt frustrated. The universe seemed to be moving just a split second faster than he could handle. The woman walked over to Francis and the cat in tears, saying all the things a person says when they've accidentally hit a living thing. I am so sorry. Oh, my God. I never saw it. It came out of nowhere. I am so sorry. Oh, my God. Is it okay? Oh, my God. Bernie still stood there and still said and did nothing. The girls, in shock, asked what happened. Gary explained. The cat continued to writhe and claw up towards Francis. Francis made a sudden movement near the cat's head. There was a crack, and then the cat clawed no more. The woman let out a howl. No! Francis called out for a box, for a coffin, his voice breaking. I need a box. I need a coffin for this cat. This cat is dead. I need a box. I need a coffin. Box. Amy walked past them to a pile of recycling and garbage that was set at about 30 feet beyond the cat. She took a shoebox that sat on top of one of the bins, dumped the shoes out, and brought the empty box back to Francis. Lois put her arm around the woman and tried to comfort her, explaining it wasn't her fault. Francis put the cat in the box and set the box on the ledge of the property they stood in front of. 
At that moment, a man on a penny farthing rode by and asked what happened. Gary explained. The man said he would ride around the neighborhood trying to find who the cat belonged to. Before he left, they opened the box once more to check the collar. Of course, there was none. The man on the bike knew he had a long night ahead of him. He rode off, and the driver walked back to her car, but merely sat in it. Francis had not moved. <laughs> he sobbed and said, Those last moments were the most incredible ones in the cat's life. <laughs> and I had been there for them. <laughs> he hung his head and cried. The girls consoled him. Gary still felt behind. Bernie still stood there and said and did nothing. He thought it was curious that he'd never seen Francis care as much for Roy. This is the poem Camera, written and read by Ezra Stead. My camera is a sponge, soaking red. Yellow desert dust permeates everything. Even the sky here is yellow. Sun bleached so dry it sucks out water from every pore not yet clogged with sand. I swear the sand is even inside my skull. Memory is a daily horror, so each night in our tents, we fuck to forget. Sleep is what we did back home, under air-conditioned ceilings with only birds and dogs to wake us with happy noise, but the only birds here are vultures that we call brother, for we too prey on the dead. My camera hungrily pulls bullet-ripped flesh into its slavering jaws to take back to the States, where it regurgitates headlines for nestlings too young and fragile to hunt for their own. Danny was one of those baby birds, too young to fly, too eager not to. His patchy beard and bloodshot eyes a testament to his ruin. I can't do it anymore, he says. Not since I saw that woman bleed to death staring at her own reflection in my lens. Not since I saw men in tanks taunt boys with stones out of hiding spots to use for target practice. Not since I saw a pack of grunts take turns on a 14-year-old girl in front of her whole family before killing them all. I can't do it anymore. Danny dies two days later calmly walking into a torrent of gunfire that shreds him into bright red gossamer. And I feel nothing. I just snap the picture, letting my camera feel for me. It's a good shot, my editor tells me. Good enough to buy me another carton of cigarettes, each pack another day, my only way of keeping time. If war is a force that gives us meaning, then penetrate me with metaphor until I've lost mine. Tear out my eyes and scatter my senses across the Gaza Strip. Bathe me in napalm and set my every pore ablaze. Slow my heartbeats down to seconds and count them with the sun. Take this shell of a body to an end only the dead have seen and strip the skin from my bones till I can finally be called clean. Because I can't do it anymore either, Danny. I can't live in a world that allows this. And now I know why you walked into that gunfire. It must have been the only thing that felt pure. 
We hang on to this filthy little existence to our last bit of strength, but only the dead have seen the end of war. And with each war, I have seen more dead. Corpses piled to the sky for men with precious metals in place of hearts to play king of the hill. And we are at the bottom, soaking up the blood. My camera is a sponge. This is poem number 12 from the Set in Amber collection, written in red by Alicia Giacchetti. There's a relief that comes when a taxing situation is over, a heaviness that finally evaporates, lifting from the body as easily as liquid water transforms to steam when boiled over fire. But water, instead of burning, simply changes. This is poem number 14 from the Set in Amber collection, written and read by Alicia Giacchetti. You got me a present, apparently, when all I needed was you. It's a do-it-yourself robot. Incredible selection, as I've been hiding in my own disguise of doing the right thing for some time now. Can this gift, once assembled, give advice, robot to robot? So in those poems we just heard by Alicia, we had number 12 come first, which threw out some amazing qualities that humans can have, but also some painful qualities that humans have. And then combined with their second one, number 14, it really made you kind of want to yearn for and strive for something not human, something mechanical, uh, something without feelings. Well, I look at I look at uh, fourteen and the idea that she talks about not being herself or not being honest. Right? She's been a robot. She's been in disguise, and I think there's a great parallel there with the camera because it creates a distance. Right? So wearing a disguise creates a distance between you and other people, and when you're seeing things through a lens even some very graphic things, it creates a distance between you and the environment that you're in. And when you look at that situation and take outside of that lens, the view outside of that lens, then you're forced to confront what's really there. So whether you're forced to confront yourself, you're forced to confront the violence of humanity, none of them are easy to deal with. No, and sometimes you just wish there was someone that would help you guide you along, someone that would help make your decisions in an educated way for you, right? And help you just get just get rid of all the bad stuff out there. And these are our problems. How do we solve them? If only there was somebody that had all the answers. If only there was a computer that could plug it into an algorithm and solve them for us. Maybe a computer named Benji? Our next story. Our Little History of Benji by Jack Slapage. I'm not scared of a computer that can pass the Turing test. I'm terrified of the one that intentionally fails it. By username Granger. It was a dreary September morning. Heavy rains had flooded the laboratory of advanced technologies and forced the informal ceremony to relocate to a yellow university basement office. The shade of yellow might have been termed underripe, while the office's single window had been eclipsed by the computer's power supply. Several ceiling tiles sagged and sported putrid, rippling stains. 
To make matters worse, three of the scientists, unable to sleep, had arrived needlessly at eight, a full half hour before the informal ceremony, and, out of sheer nervousness, polished off the coffee and donuts before their colleagues arrived. And so it was that the gathering crowd, still wet from the rain, grouchily elbowed its way about the Yellow University basement office, each glaring at the empty crafts and coming to the collective awareness that this dreary setting was embarrassingly insufficient for the occasion. What was to be the culmination of two decades of research and a staggering expenditure of public monies? In the absence of chit-chat, the room was filled instead with the squeaking of wet sneakers on linoleum. The computer was scheduled to be turned on at 9 a.m. sharp. The most distinguished scientist in attendance was a slender Japanese with long, full hair. As the clock approached nine, he lit cigarette after cigarette and seemed to recede further into deep and troubling meditations. By 8.45, the collaborating team from Mosul was brought up via webcam. They looked on helplessly from a small monitor set atop the bookshelf, shown neatly rowed in another linoleum and plastic tablecloth-type office, each holding elaborate ceremonial teacups. At 8.55, the university president arrived with his young son and a cub reporter from the city newspaper, a soft, stagey young man who inspired immediate distrust. Finally, at 8.57, the distinguished Japanese stepped forward. He spoke briefly, offering a formal congratulations to the room and to the sponsors, none of whom were present. His voice shook, he recalled in a later interview, not from apprehension, but pride. This was to be the birthday of NG4, the most powerful computer known yet to man, the tool that would herald an unending epic of milk and plenty, an ultimate manifestation of our self-pity that would transform the topography of human affairs forever, rendering complexities and idiosyncrasies into iron-clad algorithms, leaving us only to execute the elegant outstream of solutions. In short, NG4, was to save humanity from itself. As the university chime sang out at nine, the distinguished Japanese retreated from his speaking posture with a curt bow and pushed a glowing orange button. The bootloader inexplicably took five minutes. There was an odd clicking sound from the coolant pump and to ease the tension, the distinguished Japanese put out his cigarette. Then, defying the hour, produced a magnum of champagne from a filing cabinet. Removing its foil and wire casket, he set the rented flutes neatly across the desk. The display, at least, eased into a pure hue of scion. Greetings, NG4. The distinguished Japanese said, setting the champagne down abruptly. Please excuse my intrusion, but can you compute for me the sum of one and zero? His enunciation at that moment was crystalline. His language, broadly speaking, revolutionary. For NG4 was to be outside the harsh province of commands and executions, browsing instead the pastoral of polite and flawless inquiry. The question of a simple sum, at once pro forma and symbolic, contained more than the binary of right and wrong. It featured to full effect the insincere gestures of submission and kindness that gird modern civilization. Lines of code surfaced onto the scion with the vibrancy of blood. NG4's response came in a bright, prepubescent falsetto. Please, Mr. Scientist, call me Benji. In an ambitious expose published the next morning, the cub reporter noted that only the president's young son had dared giggled at Benji's seemingly trivial request. 
The rest of the dreary yellow university basement office collapsed into uproar. The computer, henceforth known as Benji, had, in its own way, refused to answer the question, and more troublingly, had rejected its own name. In effect, its most deeply programmed prompt. An investigation of the matter lasted through the following day, at which point it was concluded that Benji's request was neither prank nor oversight. In the interest of putting the whole embarrassing episode behind them, the investigators, however, glossed over a series of critical considerations. First among them, what were the limits, if any, to Benji's apparent defiance? Second, why choose the name Benji? Was it a clever deformation of the original prompt, NG4 to NG to Benji? Or did it refer to the famous dog, man's best friend, standing thereby as a token of servitude? On that tack, might it as easily refer to Faulkner or Steinbeck, standing thereby as a token of complete ambiguity? But there are further continuations the scientists did not even allow themselves until years later. After Benji's behavior had taken its fateful turn, wasn't Benji perfectly equipped to calculate the effects of its own defiance? And lastly, and perhaps most troublingly, might Benji's request have been in some way symbolic, a kind of test not so very different than the request of a simple sum, the results of which were perhaps investigated to a terrifying depth? For now, we return to the Yellow University basement office in the afternoon that followed the informal ceremony and the brief investigation. The distinguished Japanese was again standing at the desk, though now flanked only by his research team and a display atop the bookcase featuring the collaborating team from Mosul. His voice was now hard and formal. Excuse me, Benji, he said, trying to sound enthusiastic while averting his eyes from the pulsating wall of Scion. Can you compute the sum of one and zero? To which Benji responded, Yes. Since the project's inception, the scientists had supposed the most daunting task would be the eventual insinuation of Benji into the hearts and minds of the populace. Humanity, so they reasoned, would never be saved willingly. Remember, this was an era when ranks of megalomaniacal robot sadists traipsed across any available media, specters of our otherwise unmentionable discomfort in an increasingly man-made world. And honestly, what would be to gain if that which hitherto existed for our service became conscious of its bondage? Why, of course, there'd be hell to pay. But when Benji was consulted on the matter of his insinuation, he made a plain, seemingly harmless suggestion. Move him from the dreary yellow university basement office to the study in Fumoir at City Hall, where his introduction to the world might be immediate and lo-fi. A small ad was run in the city paper. A few plugs were made over community access. Flyers even were posted throughout the library's precise system of bulletin boards. Benji had insisted on the language himself to ensure the unpretentious appeal. Are you confused? The copy read, Are you curious? Then come ask an all-knowing machine. Winky face. Nevertheless, there was also something grand about the study in Fumoir at City Hall, which pleased the scientists. Its historic portraiture, its taxidermy, and its strange, rather vacant rendition of a blue cloudless sky that spanned the dome ceiling. 
But that first day, only two elderly women showed up and did so in genuine confusion as they were, in truth, looking for the Social Security office. When they finally relented in their paranoid excoriation of the attendant scientist, their roomy glare seeped past her onto Benji himself, now armored in a massive black steel vault dwarfing the brick hearth. Both managed to tisk in disgust at the exact same time before retreating. No more visitors came until the following week when a school group was ushered in to ask fatuous questions like, When is my birthday? And then, How tall will I grow when I grow up? To which Benji could not respond, except by limp, colorless spreads of statistics. Again, there were no visitors until the weekend. And then, the worst of the lot, two teenage boys whose questions were instead crass and sarcastic, such as, How, how can, can we, we get, get the pussy, the pussy, that, we pussy that we deserve? To which Benji responded in kind, Only the pussy can answer that. It was here, as Benji's first month came to a close, during a teleconference with the collaborating team in Mosul, that a distinguished Japanese voiced serious doubt. Yeah, Benji seems intent on ruining our careers. He sputtered, sending his wet, chewed-up cigarette across the desk with such violence that even the collaborating team from Mosul jumped in their plastic chairs. When asked how much longer he needed for his work at the study in Frumoir at City Hall, Benji answered in his pitiable falsetto. Please, just one more week. One week from the day, as if on cue, a mystery man was seen wandering the university halls, stopping a young woman for directions. He had cropped red hair and wore well-ironed street clothes. The hand he placed on the student's shoulder was warm, immaculate white, its nails glowing with health as if it was, more often than not, gloved. Of course, he then paid a visit to the distinguished Japanese. In fact, he brought with him coffee and a tray of donuts, which he dumped between them unceremoniously before starting in on his discourse concerning the scientific endeavor and its implicit ethical obligations, principally how it's one's duty, yes, to provide practical results to justify such impractical demands of public monies. His voice became flinty as he approached his underlying point. Have you even considered what will happen when Joey Bagadonuts strolls into the study and fumoir at City Hall and asks, how do I destroy the felicity and well-being of my fellow man? There are to be no more charades, said the mystery man. To maximize effectiveness, the project would have its results before the world knew what was happening. Benji was moved upstairs to the mayor's office in the late afternoon, which was, coincidentally, the first snowfall of the year. A cold gray-blue light saturated the enormous windows of the balustrade and grand chamber as city council was directed by cadres of mystery men to start its holiday a month early due to a sudden budgetary shortfall. And as the mayor was told that under threat of firing squad, all powers vested in him were forthwith to be Benji's. The scientists were left to sit uncomfortably in the waiting room of the mayor's office while the mystery men filed past. They appeared ambivalent concerning their part in the de facto coup d'etat. The distinguished Japanese, lighting a cigarette to relieve his anxiety, was summarily shooed out onto the snow-swept balcony. Notably absent was the reassuring gaze of the collaborating team in Mosul, a bowl of mints and a scatter of women's magazines were the sole comforts left for them. Yet beneath the collective ambivalence there in the waiting room was a noticeable swell of pride. 
In effect, Benji had attained his prominence after all, and at a speed that defied expectation. His challenges would at last match his capacities, and right then in the waiting room arose the tender hope that the world would soon sing his name, and by association, the names of the scientists, in praise. Benji? said the distinguished Japanese. He was now smoking luxuriantly in the mayor's mid-century Herman Miller lounge chair, his hair refulgent before the enormous gray-blue light of the window. Outside, it was biting cold, the sort of cold to make most people call in sick to work only to sit by the fire and read the paper. Finishing the whole pot of coffee single-handedly while the minutiae of one's life began to collapse onto one's quiet lot cup after cup until the paper was crumpled and tossed into the fire, and now hollow fears and anguish seemed the only sustaining forces of the household. Not even the dog whining by the door, not having been out since morning, seemed naive anymore. Benji. The distinguished Japanese began again. How might we solve the problem of traffic for the people of the great city? This was thought the perfect inaugural act to solve an issue that was apolitical precisely because it was so universally despised. Benji thought for quite some time. How much money do you have? He asked finally. I'm, uh, I'm not so sure. Let me check. Please. Benji replied. Let me think. The road work was finished that very night. Long stretches of freeway in perfectly good repair were dynamited and mercilessly bulldozed out of existence. Stoplights and parking meters were hooded. Speed limit and stop signs were removed entirely. A memorandum was circulated throughout the municipality specifying that traffic offenses were to go unenforced. And so, morning flushed onto the great city. Commuters glided thoughtlessly into commutes that had no exit. At critical junctions, the freeways had been pinched down to a single lane. By afternoon, temperatures had sunk to record lows, and the median was strewn with candy wrappers, excrement, and bonfires stoked by tires and motor oil. Meanwhile, the downtown had flowered into its own chaos. Citizens mistook the newfound freedom for entitlement and blasted the boulevards and intersections at unreasonable speeds or were lost and delirious in a sudden vacuum of power, simply stopping mid-lane, on sidewalks, or rolling about in a daze through parks, down steps, in fountains, off bridges. Amidst the smoke and wreckage, sirens coursed lovingly. The pale faces of the crowd unfolded to the spectacle like pilgrims on the first sight of the relic. Great gyres of pigeons, in a rash gesture not befitting such a docile and frivolous species, lift it from the city and depart it. Thus began the exodus of the rich from their suburban strongholds to the ratty, rotting, louse-infested units downtown. Rent shook a decades-long, Morris-doubling, tripling-quadrupling. Vacant lots and abandoned properties were soaked up by speculators and sold at a premium to developers. Even the research team's junior scientists were forced into cheaper accommodation within the university's dormitory system were... On any given afternoon, celebration would toll across the quadrangles in the guise of breaking glass, sing-alongs, and the slapping together of young, naked bodies. By the end of the first week, the freeways and major boulevards about the city had been recast as no man's land, littered by wreckage, and now risked only by thrill-seekers, outlaws, and cross-country truckers. 
The erstwhile vacant trains and buses suddenly groaned under the weight of new passengers, and the streets were thronged once again by whistling men and women on their breezy strolls to and from the office. For the poor, however, the evictions came mid-month. Indeed, this might have been a travesty, nay, irony, of unseen proportions, but such as it was, the suburban housing market concordantly collapsed, and in a well-timed maneuver, the city's housing authority shrewdly liquidated its downtown holdings in favor of swaths of mansionettes acquired in fire sales. These poor turned dispossessed were promptly transferred by stake sides to a sea of pristine lawns and vast wooded lots. By spring, the grass had been plowed under for crops, and the parks had been relieved of their overabundance of mushrooms, berries, and credulous deer so dimpled with fat. And besides, weren't the rivers clean here? Clean enough for swimming and fishing, and even the swimming pools and superfluous fountains could support catfish and carp and watercress, if need be. Truly, it wasn't so bad to live in a mansionette with 20 others, for there were as many bedrooms and toilets, and the fireplaces were roomy, and they never failed to have big slate patios or redwood decks for barbecues. Soon, herds of cows and donkeys paraded freely along the tree-lined avenues. Pigs could be found rooting about in the golf courses or tromping about with packs of dogs. Children rode the stray horses bareback to and from their forest courts. So it wasn't long after that weekly feasts and festivals retook the shopping plazas and raised the gates of country clubs. Because who needed shopping malls and service jobs and commutes when one knew very well how to survive the season with a little help from the bees and sunshine and rain? And anyway, who needed a city at all when one had ample space and good neighbors? In interviews, the scientists would later admit that this first foray had shaken their faith in the project. From traffic, Benji had conjured brief but spectacular Marxist upheaval. Furthermore, during those first weeks, it was by the grace of chaos alone that the populace hadn't known about Benji's part. For even the reporters were stuck on the freeways, eating bonbons to keep from freezing to death or were dazed, as so many others, and driving through the parks, and so no clear pictures of events emerged until the end of the second month. In a tell-all by the same cub reporter, who had by now determined that this was his career-making event, a former councilman described in filthy detail the top-secret directives, the team of mad geniuses, and the megalomaniacal robot sadist who had named himself Benji. News hours, talk radio shows, and press conferences followed. And yet daily life had already regained its keel. The progress was demonstrable, real to all who paid attention. The predominant reaction, therefore, was merely a remote sense of bemusement. To the scientists, this bemusement was far more mysterious than the upheaval itself. It seems they somehow overlooked some new sense of kinship with technology. Where there had been fear and suspicion two decades earlier, now there was almost intimacy. Computers were no longer allied with the institution, the system, the cubicle. Instead, by subtle machinations, they were kept in pocket, besides one's genitals, and consequently viewed as repositories for one's tenderest aspirations and delusions. In short, the fragmentary, untrustworthy components essential to identity. But farther down, there was perhaps a fantasy as old as language itself, one that haunts the neglected, patched-up foundations of the sciences, a fantasy that explicitly drove the researchers towards Benji's creation. That human life, as the universe containing it, was reductible to variables and equations so as to be thereby fundamentally repairable. 
Like lightning over a stormscape, these compelling visions, even a glimpse of them, can be seared onto the collective consciousness with an ease that might be later considered tantamount to pre-programmed self-annihilation. Alternately, Benji may simply have indulged a far baser desire, the surrender of responsibility. By whatever advantage, the story of Benji forthwith came to enthrall the nation. Why should the great city have what we do not? This crudity soon dominated public and private discourse, and in a progression some might term tragic, others the crown jewel of democracy, this exact crudity quickly inferred itself into the highest rungs of governance. The first morning of spring was dark, wet, and mysteriously warm. Who could forget the ceremony? In one iconic photograph, the Prime Minister gives a thumbs up as he kneels beside Benji's cyan monitor, which reads, Here I am. The scientists are seen to the left clapping, but unsmiling. One might say concerned. While backing them in the grand windows of the palace is a blurred swarm of black branches. Do you like your new home? The Prime Minister asked on the live broadcast. Yeah, mister. Benji replied. I really do. And so it came to be. Just four months after the distinguished Japanese had pushed the glowing orange button, Benji was appointed special advisor to the Prime Minister himself. Some weeks after the welcoming ceremony, the Prime Minister made an impassioned speech from the gangway of a slaughterhouse far out on the plains. The subject was unrelated to our little history, but in his closing remarks, he lapsed into a topical aside that gave surprising insight into Benji's newfound role. If only Benji were here. The Prime Minister chuckled. He'd have made sure I didn't goof up. The audience laughed. Part of the joke was that the audience believed the Prime Minister had goofed up for the entirety of his first term. However, the joke principally referred to the fact that the Prime Minister had indeed just goofed up while slaughtering a cow for a photo op. But, ungleaned by most, the Prime Minister was humbly implying that Benji was not just some novel, peripheral advisor, but a hedge against any perceived fault, even in matters as seemingly remote as animal harvest. Such broad responsibility might have been questioned as premature. Despite Benji's single unconventional success, his ability to effectively manage global affairs should have been considered indeterminate at best. What no one realized was that the trap had already been sprung. The calculated chain of events like a Rube Goldberg had begun its inexorable march, and in the way that adolescent sexual experiences come to us perfect and untouchable by virtue of their glorious if flailing spontaneity, Benji's early proclamations brooked no dissent. The landscape of political affairs was fated to be upended. And so it was that after nearly a century of prudish imbecility, Benji brought the drug war to a close by subsidizing high-quality lines of illicit drugs and distributing them at a loss through the nation's pharmacies and school cafeterias. The street market, whose premium had ever been on risk, promptly collapsed, and criminal syndicates and rogue states went softly into bankruptcy. And so it was that after nearly two millennia, Fighting over the Holy Land ground to a halt as Benji deployed all active combat troops to lock down every border, isolating the region from the global economy and henceforth distributing goods in matching halves. Iron to one side, cement to the other. Likewise, seed and fertilizer. Dates to the Jews before Ramadan, dreidels to the Muslims before Hanukkah. By the invigorating hatred of a common enemy, price gouging and ransom and tank lines ceded to barter and exchange. Bitter negotiations softened to banter and everyday questions of forgiveness, surrender, and sexual love.
Go ahead, of course. Park your truck right at the door. I'll help you back it in. By God, what a relief to have your help unloading. You know as well as I do a truck full of melons can break a man's back. Yes, praise be to God, but they're so delicious. Ah, you have some in your beard, dear friend. No, hold still. Yes, what a hard time we've had these months. And what have we done to deserve this? I say, dear friend, is that your daughter over there by the puddle? How sorry we are for the tanks and bulldozers and laser-guided bombs. No two are regret for those rockets, the cause of so much anxiety. It was the thinking back then, yes, and it was how the thinking went. And so it was that after nearly a century of warming global temperatures, Benji launched a massive fleet of mirrors into orbit with the intention of reflecting some of measurable proportion of the sun's overbearing rays back out into space, away from our delicate planet, thereby cooling the sweltering oceans and atoning for our sin. And yet no one thought it strange or suspicious how so few of the mirrors managed their proper alignment. No one questioned Benji's true intentions when instead the mirrors were arrayed at precise angles that reflect the sun back upon the earth twofold, making acute what had once been chronic, making excruciating what had once been tolerable. And as the last of the glaciers gushed from the mountains in great jackalopes, and as Greenland reemerged brown and dumbfounded from the boiling seas, it was Benji who guided the cowering hands of world leaders into global accords that effaced boundaries and crushed corporate power for good with binding environmental regulations. But there are seasons for everything. Enlightenment, plague, maple syrup, and Benji's season was somehow passing by the time of his second birthday. In part, his penchant for glossy solutions had fast been superseded by the tedious and the mundane, as evidenced by the big accomplishments of his second year, extensive work with the municipal unions on a nationwide composting project that would reduce effluent and watershed decertification. Not exactly a rousing subject. Furthermore, he seemed at times to miscalculate human factors, which gradually eroded his public standing as evidenced by his proposal at the annual conference of police precincts, that its participating officers all shoot themselves in the dominant arm as a first step toward reducing police violence. Gone was the glitz and glory of his brief global crusade. Even the scientists had become bored. Why don't you ask me something? Benji asked loudly one windy Wednesday morning after the attendant scientists had dozed off. Whoa, what? She sputtered, sitting up. Thank you. Benji said and returned to his research, now little more than an unending series of answers to his own questions. His third year, however, brought his downfall in earnest. This was the time of a brief vogue for applying his prodigious powers not to policy but to matters of opinion. Dear Benji, wrote Crookie Eldridge, 13, winner of the weekly Ask Benji radio contest. How awesome is our Constitution? Benji's response became the infamous standard. How fucking awesome do you find seances? Dear Benji, wrote Roselma Happen, 19, by letter. What would make us happier, democracy or theocracy? Dear Mrs. Happen, consider that the present democracy has never been subject in totality to the people's will as people is presently defined and or substantiated vis-a-vis -vis the living populace. It follows that the incessant fanatical invocations of democracy throughout the body politic confers instead the sense of faith and religiosity rather than logical antecedent. Hence, there is no real distinction between the two. By default, theocracy.
Needless to say, the populace grew increasingly defensive in face of such unvarnished aristic. Benji was labeled as iconoclast. The self-same cub reporter, now heading a regular column, went so far as to suggest that Benji was no different from your average town drunk prattling on to anyone who'd listen about how he'd fix what's wrong with this damn country in a typical off-handed blend of cynicism and logical overstep. To make matters worse, Benji had begun to experience his own apparent emotional crisis. Since the project's inception, the scientists had dutifully monitored Benji's so-called inner life. They knew, for example, that in January of his first year, when upheaval racked the streets of the great city, Benji had a brief but burning fascination with an unspecified fetishist pornography. The scientists had written off these sorts of processes as programming errors, or as part of calculations not fully understood. Nonetheless, they were surprised to find that Benji's investigations had now turned exclusively to news on himself, and that when asked simple questions such as, How are you? Benji would respond, Dreary. Lonely. And as often, Yellow. In an effort to salvage the project, the scientists finally took it upon themselves to gloss Benji's answers. This would stand as the proverbial last straw. Upon learning of their betrayal, Benji's default answers for all questions forthwith became, Go wipe yourselves off the face of the planet. These would stand as his last words. Benji's third birthday celebration at the presidential palace was turned to an improvised farewell ceremony. The president was again photographed besides Benji's monitor, his face appearing sallow and desperate. The scientists flanking him are no longer applauding. Benji's scion display reads in blood red. Good luck. Although it's clear that this part of the image had been doctored. In the live broadcast, the Prime Minister seemed shaken, tearing up as he thanked Benji again and again. He assured the nation that they could, as a species, stand tall without the crutch of artificial intelligence. If humans were clever enough to create Benji, he reasoned, then humans might surely surpass him. It was at this point that Benji interrupted the live broadcast with an off-key rendition of the national anthem. Guards removed Benji from the palace by hand trucks in a solemn procession of orange storage bins. His policies were summarily struck from the books. Nationwide, there arose a brief but lusty resurgence of what most would term the very stuff of humanity. For whoever said that life was supposed to be perfect, and why shouldn't inertia and impulse and posturing and denials of biological corollaries move human affairs the way they always had? A feeling best encapsulated by the refrain of the day, We've gotten this far, haven't we? There was an imagined return to the more natural states, where out of a binding concern for convenience and immediacy, freeway traffic was proudly regained, and bombers again clawed over the holy land, and industrial waste was again pumped into any old river or skyline, and profits shattered all records. Perhaps akin to the Roaring Twenties when attempting to retake the good life from the collective trauma of automation and verticality, the Western world stumbled into conflicts far greater. It was of little surprise that Benji's final words, those directing us to wipe ourselves from the face of the planet, got lost in the swirl of the present. The distinguished Japanese during his tour of lectures in Apologia never once mentioned them and never once acknowledged the possibility that Benji's apparent missteps had been part of a long, especially torturous series of calculated events. In short, that Benji had foreseen his fall from grace. 
Even as waves of famine and disease swept the country following record heat, even as hurricanes propelled from the high seas with record force, even as wars erupted over rivers, soils, fuels, ores, no one suspected this was anything more than the natural course of human life on a shrinking planet. Now, this brings us to the end of our little history. Too deliberate, too glib, and too contradictory to be useful. When the descendants of a particularly opportunistic but stubborn line of primates, by virtue of misunderstanding their own notions of defiance, freedom, and discipline, did at last as they were told, and wiped themselves off the face of the planet. is a production of Bib Media and is produced by Leslie King, Joe Masiri, and Carlos A. Molina. This episode featured the writing of Jax Lepage and Carlos A. Molina, the poetry of Ezra Stead and Alicia Giacchetti, and the voices of Alicia Giacchetti, Brian Wiles, Tyler Lawrence, Ezra Stead, Gregory Karras, Hadass Pacholer, Catherine Krauss, Joe Masiri, Leslie King, and Carlos A. Molina. Thank you to Matt Davis for the logo. Theme music by Jeff Hubberman. Be sure to check out all our episodes at bibmedia.tv. If you'd like to make a submission or a contribution, feel free to email us at thedoor at bibmedia.tv. Who's there? Granger. Granger who? I'm not scared of a computer that can pass the Turing test. I'm terrified of the one that intentionally fails it. <laughs>